The future of fitness is here. Be a part of it. NASM's new virtual coaching course will equip you with the skills, tools, and strategies necessary to launch, operate, or transition your current fitness or wellness business to a successful virtual coaching business. As a virtual coaching specialist, you'll open yourself up to a whole new world of opportunities, being able to help clients from around the world anywhere and anytime. It's the ultimate flexibility as a trainer, while also creating new revenue streams. Start the next phase of your training career with NASM's Virtual Coaching Specialization. Sign up today at nasm.org or call 1-800-460-6276. You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie. Thank you so much for being here today. And uh, shout out to the, the Weight Loss Specialist course, which goes into content about behavior change and understanding more about your client and empathy and working with them, not just prescribing exercise. And as we know, exercise isn't the the best solution for weight loss. It is a supplement for weight loss. So the course I think is going to be an amazing course. I'm really looking forward to, to looking into this, this uh, free mini course, the science behind effective weight loss. You get an opportunity to, to check it out. I think it's a great feeder course into the certified nutrition coach, um, which is a specialization that NASM launched about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and it has been spectacular. And fortunately for us, we have Brad Dieter with us today, who is going to discuss with us a little bit more about kind of what went into that course as he did reviews for many of those uh, for the entire textbook, for the chapters, and then wrote several of the chapters in that text. Brad Dieter, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome and tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, for having me on here. I think this is, man, maybe my second or third time on the show. Uh, always a pleasure to be here, and and always just an honor to be able to contribute anything to the NASM, uh, you know, family, um, as I like to call it at this point in my career. So, yeah, you know, my my background it's it's been a fun ride for me. Um, I kind of went through formal academia, did a master's, did a PhD, did a postdoc, was a faculty scientist at a, an academic hospital. Um, and then moved into more of the kind of industry entrepreneur space and own and, and run um, a health coaching company and do some biotech work um, kind of on the, the metabolic side of things and have been super fortunate to be able to contribute a lot to the NASM, um, you know, uh, gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? All, I guess all of the education over the last few years. So I was heavily involved in the CNC program. Um, and there's some, some good stories I can tell you about that process and some oh, pretty, funny, pretty funny ones too. And, uh, <laughs> and the, the weight loss specialist, uh, specialization that just launched, which is really cool to see that commercial kind of kick this show off. Um, I hadn't seen that one yet, so that's pretty awesome. Oh, me either. That was new to me. So that was yeah. pretty cool to watch. Yeah. I was like, this is awesome. I'll have to get a clip of it so I can like put it in my archives or something. And uh, yeah, so very, very nice to be here. Oh man, it's always good to have you on the show. And listen, I want to, uh, I want people to feel a little bit more comfortable with understanding what we're going to talk about today. So yeah. you deal with nutrition, right? Like nutrition is really your, is, is that correct? Or is it behavior change and nutrition? Tell me a little bit more about that. 
You know, my, my big kind of area of expertise is probably nutrition. Um, and specifically as it relates to, to metabolic disorders, um, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, weight loss, uh, a little bit of neurobiology, but that's kind of more of where I, I focus most of my kind of content expertise. Gotcha. Well, we are, we're going through a, a series of trying to get people that are on the NASM scientific advisory board to yeah. be on the show and you being on the show is very helpful. But, and what we want to do by having people from the, the scientific advisory board be here is to show our connection with not just research, which we put in, but the researchers, the people who are actually out there, you know, here we are with a randomized control trial, and here we are doing some some things in in academia and and studying this and knowing really where the science is coming from mm -hmm. by working with people who are varied, but included in that people who are actually scientists, like yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of weird when you think about when people ask you what you do for a living and you say, Oh, I'm, I'm a scientist. And they're like, what does that even mean? And I go, I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know. I put people into groups and I see the differences between what happens. So, yep. uh, so, well, let's talk a little bit more about what your primary, um, area of study is you talked about metabolic diseases and type two diabetes. And as people on this show, well, know, uh, I, I was diagnosed with type two diabetes in 2018. It was March 15th. The Ides of March was, yep. was when the, the nail really went into the coffin. Like we, we saw it coming. Um, yep. there was this slow build that started taking place mm -hmm. and then there was a sickness. So I got sick yep. and then after the sickness, which I think was the flu, I just, it was a bad flu year and I didn't go. I was just like, I just have the flu and I stayed in bed. Um, and then I lost about 30 pounds and I was like, well, that's not the flu. And yep. I was going to the bathroom all the time. And then I was drinking water as if it was made out of fairy dust. Yep. It was so good. I don't even drink water that much in regular life. And I was like, I just can't get enough. Give me this water, this elixir of life. And and I thought, well, maybe it's because I turned 40. Right? Yeah. Maybe these things start happening. I have pee all the time because I'm 40. Maybe, yeah. uh, maybe I drink water suddenly because I just turned this age. And then... I went to get my um, A1Cs and my blood sugar. My blood sugar was, it was leading up to it, it was high, but a fasting blood sugar of 350 uh, yeah. was really high. Yeah. And the A1C came back a few days later and it was almost 13. So some things shifted in my body. There was some serious things. And this is why it's important to me because I've been living with this progressive disease yep. for, for several years now. So it's almost 2021 where all I mean, March is around the corner. So almost three years. Yeah. Um, talk, to, talk to us about this specifically type two, um, about this particular pathology. And then how does that fit in with something that we hear a, a lot called a metabolic syndrome, where we hear sometimes these two things kind of in, a, in the same conversation? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, so I think, you know, one of the places to start is, and, and you kind of hit a lot of the major points. So type two diabetes um, is, I think the first place to start is just to kind of 
state that it's very different than type one. Um, type one diabetes is the disease where you have an autoimmune condition that causes your body to destroy the cells that create insulin in your body. So you, you have a lack of insulin. Um, and you can control that through just insulin medication. And it's a much different disease than type two, which is a disease of insulin resistance. Um, so one is you don't produce insulin and the other one is your body is not responsive to the normal effects of insulin. Um, and generally speaking, the causes of, of each one are very different. Um, type one is genetic and environmental. There's a combination there that we haven't really fully understood, but um, there's a genetic predisposition and some environmental trigger that causes the initiation of it. <clears throat> type two is um, really for lack of a better word is an energy overload situation. Um, and really what happens is you accumulate too much energy in your body, generally through, um, fat storage. Um, there can be other things that contribute to that. You can have, you know, some genetic predispositions, you can have, you know, increased oxidative stress, um, inflammatory responses. And we can kind of come back to that a little bit and, and talk mm -hmm. a little bit about your kind of history there. Um, and all those things basically trigger insulin resistance in your body. Um, and then that starts this kind of process of, you know, you start storing fat in inappropriate places. You, you know, start not responding to insulin normally, your metabolism gets off, and then it just kind of continues to build and build. And it is a very progressive kind of type of disease. Um, and then the kind of complications, the microvascular and the macrovascular complications, so small vessels and large vessels in your body and the organs associated with it, those are all start to, those progressive side effects build over time. Yeah, and, and I think this is what we talk about as comorbidities, right? So you get these comorbidities and yeah. sometimes people hear the word diabetes and then they find out that diabetes is almost a feeder into these other comorbidities. It causes damage in other places. So explain what goes on there and how how diabetes is really something that that damages, I guess, the blood vessels and, uh, and then can lead to other, these, as you mentioned, the micro and macrovascular complications. Yeah. So there's, there's a few things that happen. Um, you know, one of the most obvious is when your body becomes insulin res resistant, you have elevated blood glucose and high amounts of sugar in your blood have deleterious effects on organs, on vessels, on proteins, on cells, etc. Um, so you have increased glycation, you have increased oxidation. Um, that's a, that's a primary one. Um, another one is generally you will have what we call ectopic fat accumulation. So basically the fat that you normally store in your subcutaneous tissue, or you store in kind of storage forms in like your skeletal muscle, a little bit in your liver, you start to store more of it in places that it doesn't necessarily need to be or should be stored. Um, and so as those accumulate, that can cause issues in things like your liver, in your heart, um, in your kidneys, in your, your fat tissue itself, um, in your immune system. So that's another one. Uh, blood pressure is also a big one that changes. So generally speaking, with obesity and diabetes, you have these metabolic shifts, um, and those generally will affect your blood pressure. So generally, it will raise your blood pressure. Um, and we know that increased blood pressure has problems on your heart. 
Um, it has problems in your lungs. It has problems in your kidneys. Um, and then also, you know, you've got things like strokes, um, in, you know, uh, like infarctions that can occur. So that's, that's kind of the, the three main reasons why diabetes can lead to some of these kind of end organ complications or comorbidities. Infarction is just, it's a funny word for a bad condition. So, yeah. uh, it's, it's just like, that means like a tissue death or necrosis, right? Uh, yeah, it's a lack of blood flow. Yeah. Okay. So, so when it becomes infarct, yeah. then it, there's something that's limiting blood flow to an area. So, and one of the interesting things, and you, you kind of mentioned with this, with your story is, and, and we actually see this, um, quite a bit with, uh, current pandemic issues, right? The, the COVID-19 disease, um, massive infections or sicknesses can also like precipitate type two diabetes in people. Um, and it has to do with kind of the, the inflammatory response triggering, triggering a pretty massive insulin resistance. So we actually, you know, people who are kind of, you know, maybe pre-diabetic and they become super sick, obviously that will, often that will kind of trigger them to, to go into full diabetes. Um, we actually see this quite a bit with people who have come down with, with COVID. Um, we actually, I actually have a couple of clients of mine who got sick and it kind of turned their pre-diabetes into full wow. diabetes. Um, and so these are things that we generally see um, happen more often than not with people who kind of have, you know, are, are on the pathway to developing diabetes. Yeah. So the, I, I heard it, I can't remember exactly what it was. Maybe um, I'm just blanking on it right now, but uh, disease induced hyperglycemia or sickness, illness induced <laughs> hyperglycemia. I mean, it's just a name where somebody gets sick yeah. and then all of a sudden their, their blood sugars go through the roof. It stays elevated. And then we've got kind of changes that take place in the body. Uh, so with this being said, I also find that some people, even educated people, have a hard time understanding the concept that that a type 2 diabetic over time has kind of the inability to produce insulin. And, and so they present at that point, it's not an autoimmune disease, but they present at that point. Um, yeah. almost like a type one, uh, diabetic where they, they are not able to produce insulin. Can you briefly jump into that one and explain that? Yeah, of course. Um, so we call, we call that, uh, insulin dependent type two diabetes. And generally what happens if you, I have a graph of this, maybe I can share it with you guys afterwards, but it's kind of the natural mm -hmm. course or natural history of disease, uh, for type two diabetes. And essentially what happens is as your body starts to develop insulin resistance, your pancreas will start to produce more insulin to keep your blood glucose level within kind of normal ranges. Um, and your body can keep up with that for years. So a lot of times you'll kind of have prediabetes or insulin resistance and you'll, you won't know because your blood glucose won't be elevated. Um, so eventually over time, your body's ability to either get an insulin signal or your pancreas is kind of maxed out its insulin production that can't overcome the insulin resistance. So your blood glucose starts to go up. And then what happens is you start to have such high levels of blood glucose circulating all the time. You have such high levels of oxidative stress. You have, um, kind of ectopic fat accumulation. And eventually all of those things contribute to your beta, your beta cells in your pancreas, the ones that produce insulin they start to slowly die off. Um, and this is like 
generally it's 10, 15, 20 years within a disease. And at that point you have all of the kind of metabolic symptoms of type two diabetes. So you're insulin resistant, you're hypertensive, you're hyperglycemic, you're generally hyperlipidemic. Um, and now your body cannot produce insulin because you've kind of over time shot your insulin cells. And it's not that they get tired and they can't produce more insulin. It's that they actually will die. They will, they'll go away. Um, and so then people have to take insulin along with all their other kind of anti-glycemic medication. Interesting. Interesting. And, and then that's the one where I think there are too, so many people that just don't understand that, but this is kind of a, uh, a rolling hill where, uh, when they talk about a progressive disease, that's what that means. And yeah. with a progressive disease, it's very difficult too. And, and I want to talk about this with you because this is a, a field of study for you. And, and one of the things I want to discuss is even though you're not a psychotherapist, I know that you've dealt with this. There, there is an immense amount of guilt on my part. When I was yeah. diagnosed with type two diabetes, there was a guilt because I used to say things like type two diabetes should not exist. Type yeah. two diabetes is a lifestyle disease. And let's be honest, for the most part it is, but there are other factors that, that lead into that. So lifestyle is a big component of it. And, and I'm not minimizing that, but when I was diagnosed with it, boy, did that punch me in the gut though. So now I'm looking at it thinking, well, what all did I do wrong? Where did I mess up? How am I messed up? And, and it, it was a tailspin for me handling the, the guilt that I put on myself. I don't think anybody else is looking at me going, well, maybe you shouldn't have done this or that. Um, but what I try to, to get through also is that, you know, focusing on what, what got you there doesn't, doesn't help you get through the next years of your life. So yeah. what coming up with the what's next, but have you dealt with that? Have people expressed any guilt uh, or some other emotions that kind of go along with their diagnosis. Yeah. And I think it ranges the full spectrum of kind of human emotion, right? There's a lot of times there's guilt, there's fear, there's, um, you know, grief, there's loss, there's anger, there's frustration. It's kind of the whole spectrum. Um, sometimes there's apathy and people just resign themselves to their future. It kind of, it, it's really all over the the full spectrum. Um, and I think it depends on. I've been on all of those, by the way. Yeah. Right. All of them. Guilt was the, the most pressing, but yeah. all of those. Yeah. And so I think it's, you know, it depends on where people are in their journey and kind of what their background and their story is. And, um, you know, it, it's just really all over the map in terms of what people feel, um, with regard to, to the disease. Um, you know, I think on the other side, you know, the people who are practitioners, people who are scientists trying to solve some of these problems, you know, it, it, like you said, it can be, you know, one of those things where when you haven't experienced it, it's hard to understand. Um, and, and I'm one of those people who I, I have never been diagnosed. I currently don't have any issues like that. And so I know for me that there's, I can kind of show a level of empathy. Um, but even then I realize and acknowledge like, Hey, there's, there's a limit to my understanding what that journey is like for people. Um, and I think we try to do the best we can and then meet people where they're at, but then realize like, Hey, there is a personal part of this journey that I can't connect with. Um, but still try to do the best we can. Right. And, and there are other things too, where, 
where we know that that diabetes is very, very strongly correlated with obesity. Why, why is that? Why is there such a strong correlation between those two things? Yeah. So the, the reason is the primary mechanisms or the primary reasons that cause diabetes are directly linked to excess adipose tissue. Um, so when we think about what causes peripheral insulin resistance, like in your skeletal muscle and your organs, um, and then in your liver, in your pancreas, um, the mechanisms that cause those problems are directly related to carrying excess body fat, the inflammation that occurs from having too much body fat, the metabolic changes that occur from having too much body fat, the, um, you know, kind of oxidative stress and things like that. All of those kind of kick off from accumulating body fat above a certain point. Um, and, and that's the reason now the reason like people who have a lean phenotype, um, so people who don't carry an excess amount of body fat, the reason that they can also have or develop type two diabetes is all of those things can happen in people who, who don't necessarily have it in a huge amount of body fat. Um, there's a theory that there's like a personal set point where once you cross that threshold, you start having these things. For some people, it's very high. And for some people, it's very low. And then there's just other things that can happen that will set that off, right? Um, massive amounts of stress, infections, um, environmental exposures, some things like that can also do that. So when, when we look at... Um body fat it's interesting too and and i don't i know we don't have an answer to this but i do just want to like pick your brain about it uh, there's some people who are obese um, some people do have elevated levels of body fat and they don't get diabetes and then there are people that maybe don't have a lot of body fat that that do get diabetes do we know even though it's strongly correlated why why some why the other and 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 i I feel free to go ahead and say this is a pretty complicated subject. So we yeah. like to say, oh, too many sodas and uh, you ate too many Skittles or whatever. And that doesn't, it, even in the research, it doesn't seem to show too much that that's the case. Um, so there seems to be more to it. it. It's associated and there are associations, but trying to find out like what causes type two diabetes specifically is it, hard to nail down to just this thing, whatever that is. Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting about this, and this is a great point. Um, it, an analogy I usually draw when people ask this question is it's like, we know exactly how, um, smoking causes lung cancer. Like we know the exact mechanisms by which smoking induces lung cancer, mm. but we don't have a great understanding of why some people smoke, you know, 50,000 packs in a lifetime and don't get cancer. And some people smoke yeah, yeah. like two years and get lung cancer. Um, and my like my best uh like read on the literature is some of it is genetic um and some of it has to do with your like the size of your metabolic sink i'll call it right so somebody who is you know six foot four 250 pounds but they have you know, 200 pounds of lean tissue, they have a much bigger metabolic sink that can kind of deal with excess energy. Um, somebody who's much smaller has a much lower threshold because their metabolic sink is much lower. Um, that's one of them. Um, 
you know, other than that, it really comes down to just like, how do people's metabolisms respond to kind of stress and metabolic stresses? Um, and we, we honestly don't have great answers for, you know, if you take two people who are the exact same body composition and have the exact same life, essentially why one will get diabetes and one will not, um, we don't have great answers to that. It's a very interesting piece of the diabetes research. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is uh, a layered onion, and uh, you know, peeling peeling back all those pieces can be quite challenging for even researchers who have been doing this their entire life. And and understanding correlations it doesn't necessarily mean that they understand what causes it. And yeah. I think that that's very um, commendable for the scientific um, uh, community, where you can simply point out correlations and but. But getting it down to the exact cause is still a little challenging and, and, and being able to simply say that it's multifactorial too. Yeah. So it's not just that one thing. Um, but let's, let's move on from kind of the lead up to diabetes to a diagnosis of diabetes into the what's next. What, yeah. What's next now that a diagnosis comes through from your perspective and from what you do? Yeah. Um, there, there's quite a few pieces to that. One is, I, I guess the first one is, you know, just trying to understand where they are in, in the process, right? A lot of times people will be diagnosed and they're 15 years into the disease. Um, maybe they haven't seen a GP, maybe they've just been living with it and didn't really know. Um, and there's other people who, you know, probably like yourself, who it's like, hey, this just kind of kicked off in the last three to six months. It's really uncontrolled, but it's relatively new. Um, so the first part is just kind of understanding where you're at in, in your kind of arc of the disease. Have you had it for a long time and you're just not being diagnosed or is it brand new? Cause that will make uh, a big difference in terms of like, what is the treatment strategy? Um, if you're pretty early, generally speaking, some mild medication, um, from like an endocrinologist or an internal med doc along with lifestyle you know, interventions are probably the most effective, right? We know from the, uh, the diabetes prevention program, that lifestyle, specifically exercise, caloric restriction, weight loss can do wonders for kind of addressing type two diabetes, um, in terms of the symptomology, um, in terms of kind of the long-term progression. So literally diet exercise and maybe very mild medication, really gets you most of the way to what your kind of quote unquote treatment needs to be. Um, there's been papers published in the New England Journal that compare, you know, lifestyle versus kind of standard of care medical interventions like pharmaceutical interventions and lifestyle is super effective. Um, it's far more effective than just medication. So those things, right? The dial in your nutrition, start getting more exercise. I mean, even just walking and making sure that weight loss is a priority at that point. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, if you have somebody who's, who's pretty far into the disease, it starts to become a lot more about, can we slow progression of complications? Um, and kind of with my own blinders on, I spent, man, how many years is that? About five years studying just kidney disease in people with diabetes is a lot of these end organ complications like um, diabetic kidney disease, diabetic cardiomyopathy, retinopathy, neuropathy, a lot of those things, it comes down to, you've got to be pretty on top of what medications pharmacotherapy can help slow progression. Um, because at some point, 
you're kind of past the point where just lifestyle-based interventions can slow disease progression. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it because it can help, but you do need to have some sort of, you know, physician working with you to slow the, to slow the progression of those things. Um, and, and that's kind of a really good place to start is like, where are you in this process? Um, where do we need to go from here? Yeah. And, and one of the things too, is to point out that it's really never too late to start. And I think a lot of people feel like you mentioned apathy, right. Yeah. As one of the, the things that people feel and they become apathetic and they say, Oh, I've, I've got this disease. So, um, maybe I've just continue to, to, to live whatever the lifestyle is and, and take more medication. And, and I can understand that from, from uh, my perspective too, where it was like, I would just want, I love cereal. You know what I mean? Like, I just want to eat a bowl of cereal for goodness sakes. Uh, and, and, and mine, I'm fortunate because I can, I can kind of pair my, my carbohydrate intake with my daily activity. Right. So for, for, for me, and this is not for a lot of people, it's, it's, this is not meeting them where they are, but I know uh, I'm going to eat um, a cereal in the morning and then have a sandwich for lunch. But I also know that shortly after lunch, I'm going to go for a run. And then that's going to, that's going to drop those, those blood sugars back down. So it, it's, it, it's beneficial, first of all, just to say like exercise for me, how my body reacts to exercise is incredible. And across the boards and the research, we see exercise being such an incredible tool as a means of medicating uh, people with this disease. So dietary interventions and exercise are so valuable and they're so helpful. But uh, I think one of the things I want to look at, well, I have a series of things, but let's, so let's triage this a little bit. Um, give me a little scientific understanding. So I don't need insulin if I'm doing it, or I don't need the amount of insulin that it, I would normally need if I'm doing exercise. So can you explain how this process of exercising actually allows for uh, glucose uptake when normally yeah. it requires insulin to do so? Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. Um, and when I think about it is probably the best way to describe it is when you're exercising, you're kind of doing a couple things. One is your body's actively utilizing the energy that's available. Um, that's like in your body. And so you will start to shift more towards glucose metabolism. So the glucose that's in your bloodstream and in your muscle tissue will start to be used to, to do physical work. Um, and so that in and of itself kind of frees up additional space in your body for glucose. Um, you know, I think about like an analogy you could give somebody is like, hey, if your hard drive's full and you delete some files, you can download more stuff. Um, yeah. Right. And so that's kind of a, a decent analogy for, for what you're doing when you're exercising is you're kind of using up, you're deleting the glucose in your body. So you have more room for more. Um, that's kind of probably the most crude, crude one. Um, the other one is, and you mentioned it, your body can take up your, your peripheral tissue. So your skeletal muscle, um, some of your organs will actually take glucose up from the blood through two different mechanisms. One is insulin dependent. Um, so you, when your cells are exposed to insulin, it turns on a bunch of proteins that then pull glucose in from your blood. Um, when you exercise, 
you also activate a separate set of proteins in your body that will pull in glucose that's independent of insulin. Um, Because that way, you know, and it makes sense if you think about it, right? When you're exercising, you're generally not consuming a lot of food while you're exercising. But your body has a need for pulling in glucose from your blood to keep moving. So your body over time has evolved to be like, hey, I can pull in glucose independent of insulin when I actually need it, when I'm actually moving around at a pretty high rate. Um, so, so that's another one that is kind of an important piece. And then with, with those things, you've got this non-insulin dependent uptake of glucose into the body. Um, it, it makes me also wonder, like, I know that people produce glucose, right? Mm-hmm. So that leads me to a question that for somebody whose main focus is nutrition, um, It might be a a prickly question, but if I exercise in a fasted state, does that then make me start producing more glucose and will that adversely affect the workout situation? You know, that's a great question. Um, It it can 100%. So if you're exercising in a fasted state, your body's kind of creation of glucose is going to be a little bit higher than if you're not. Um, now that may be good or that may be bad. It depends on you know who you are and, and what you're doing. Um, but the real piece is, is more so the intensity of your exercise. So if you're exercising at a very high intensity, your body's going to be producing more glucose from your liver um, or releasing more glucose from your liver than if you're exercising at a pretty low intensity. Um, So this is one of those things where, you know, especially if we're working with people who have type one diabetes, we actually pay quite a bit of attention to, right? Um, So if you have somebody who's doing super high intensity exercise, as soon as they stop exercising, their liver may continue to produce a little more glucose um, because it's kind of expecting it to keep going, but it won't have the insulin to push it into your, um, your skeletal muscle anymore. So sometimes we have to monitor the intensity of exercise uh, of people just to make sure that what we know what's going on. Yeah, I think that's a great way to to answer that question because you're yeah. right. The that intensity of exercise does spike that that um, gluconeogenesis, right? Uh, so, that, but here's what's also very interesting in the research: we know that that happens, but we also see a lot of really good results coming from. A1Cs and and blood sugars through this high intensity interval training. Yep. So does it is it kind of like epoch? Is it like you know we produce a a a, a, um, um, a spike? A spike, yeah. <laughs> where you know you kind of drop down and then you fill it up as time goes on. So you're you're producing insulin for what that initial utilization. Of sugar is it just at this point though it just doesn't catch up you know your production doesn't catch up to what was uh metabolized yeah and that's that's the kind of the argument of acute effects versus chronic effects right um like if we just focused on the acute effects of food or exercise on blood glucose like generally speaking nobody should consume any carbohydrates right um but the chronic the chronic level of your blood glucose is actually what really matters, right? A spike right after you consume a banana or an apple or some rice or a potato, um, that's what your body's meant to handle, right? We've evolved this um, you know, insulin response to both protein and carbohydrates 
to shuttle nutrients where they need to go in a fed state. Um, so acute spikes are normal. Your body's supposed to do that. That's what, that's what we've evolved for. The problem is when you're in a disease state, are those acute spikes, are we handling them appropriately? Um, and then chronically, are they returning back to normal or are they, um, you know, staying elevated? Interesting. Uh, you also bring up something I, I'm curious about too. So you mentioned protein as well. So we're yeah. blood sugar is clearly very important, but I, I work out. So what about for me? Because I know that you know, through studying, you, you're supposed to take this a non-diabetic, it works well for at least, uh, you take a, you know, a three to one ratio of carbohydrate to protein, and that's going to help get protein. How does protein get taken up into the system without really insulin supporting that? So that somebody that's maybe type two diabetic, like myself, who's looking to put on a little gun show, uh, how is it possible for me to build muscle? Um, yeah. So I guess the first place to start is you know, protein, when you consume it by itself, elicits an insulin response. Um, so carbohydrates are not the only foods that insul that elicit an insulin response. Protein does as well. So if you consume, you know, just protein by itself, you are going to get some insulin response and that will kind of help basically send the proteins where it needs to go in the body. Um, your other question about, you know, building muscle generally speaking, when we have people with, with type two diabetes, they don't show a massively impaired ability to build muscle tissue. Um, it, it, and it's a little bit less related to like carbohydrate and protein metabolism specifically as it is to, are they getting enough resistance training and are they eating an adequate amount of calories to build muscle tissue? Generally speaking, people with type two diabetes, that's the case. And some people, they do have an impaired kind of muscle protein synthesis response. If they're pretty far in the disease, if their insulin resistance is pretty high, um, those sorts of things. On the other side of the coin, people with type one diabetes generally have a pretty impaired ability to put on muscle tissue, um, unless they are pretty smart with their nutrition and their insulin usage. Um, so, and this is kind of comes down to the big difference between the diseases is type two is, you know, your body's still producing insulin. You're just not super sensitive to the signal. So it takes a lot more insulin to give you the same signal. People with type one, they have no signal. Um, it's not there unless you're taking it, um, you know, pharmaceutically, so to speak. So, um, you know, people who are like type one bodybuilders, they have to use insulin very smartly. They have to be pretty on top of it with their nutrition. And generally it's a little more difficult for them, you know, to put on muscle mass than the average person, because unless they're using insulin, you know, daily and at a pretty good rate, they're just always in a catabolic state. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So listen, I, I know that there are a lot of people that might be listening right now that have, uh, a friend, a family member, a loved one that um, has type two diabetes and they'll want to ask questions and I want them to, I want to ask one more question and yeah. then I'm going to pop it over to Greg and see if we've got any chat going on uh, in, a, in this Facebook live um, feed. So the question is on hydration and yeah. I had heard somebody, I was, at, I think it was a, a nurse, uh, a nurse practitioner was talking about how the blood kind of gets thick, right? And that the reason we want water is because we're pulling this 
and then fluid from the periphery into the the blood vessels to try its best to dilute the excess sugar in the, in the blood. So how does hydration, how does, you know, before we even get to there, right? Like if I'm just drinking water on a regular basis, will yeah. that help to support and dilute this process? And then maybe because we know that that even diabetes mellitus means you're basically siphoning through sugar yeah. going in one side and going right out through the urine on the other side. Does it does it help to facilitate the process of lowering blood sugar at all? Um, no, not really. Okay. So, and this kind of comes down to a, a nephrology lesson. Um, but yes. so I guess yeah. So I guess a few yeah. things. Um, one, so when the person talks about your blood thickness. Um, generally speaking, as long as you're kind of normally adequately hydrated, the thickness of your blood is more determined by your red blood cell count. So your hematocrit, um, mm -hmm. then like if you're slightly dehydrated or slightly overhydrated, um, the reason that like when you have diabetes, either type one or type two, and you start to become very thirsty is your body is trying to unload the excess sugar through your kidneys. Um, so like I wrote a paper on this, I'll have to find it. Um, Please send it to me. But all day, every day, like even myself who doesn't have type two diabetes and you who do your glucose is being filtered into your kidney space and then back into your body all day, every day. Like you're filtering thousands of grams a day. Um, when you get too high of a concentration in your blood, your kidneys stop reabsorbing them and you just start peeing it out. And whenever you pee it out, it takes water, right? It takes a liquid to facilitate removing that. So you're actually peeing out more water because you have elevated blood glucose. So you get thirsty because you're feeling dehydrated, right? So it's not like, hey, I'm drinking more, so I'm peeing more out. It's I'm peeing more out, so I'm drinking more. So kind of that causal loop is, is reversed. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah. That makes sense. And then based off of what you're saying too, then I'd also maybe point out the same thing about food, right? So I know that especially uh, when I was uncontrolled, I felt like I wanted to eat all the time. And is that because I was actually not taking up glucose into my body? So I kept trying to eat it or eat something because I needed to feed something that was never going to get to its appropriate endpoint at the end of the day anyway. Yeah. You know, a part of, part of it could be that, um, part of it could be, you know, when you, if you become pretty insulin resistant pretty quickly, kind of your ability to manage hunger may be slightly off all your other hormones or your hunger hormones may be off. Um, it's just, there's a lot of different things that can kind of cause that. So I don't know if it's like one specific piece, but there's kind of, mm. there's quite a few different things. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, let's see, I've, I've really made this entire thing about me. So thank you. For <laughs> that's that's thank your you. prerogative as the host, right? You get to do whatever you want. Uh, I, I hope that people are finding ways to make application and to find understanding through the conversation when I'm, I'm asking questions that are specifically pertinent, but you know, I, I know my story and I know my experience. So these, uh, these questions continue to come up. But with that said, I do want to give people the opportunity. Uh, again, friends, family, loved ones, people that have type 2 diabetes, there are, there are people here that are listening or, or even clients. You're a personal trainer. You have clients that have type 2 diabetes. 
um, I, let's pop over to Greg, see if there are any questions that anybody may have that want to uh, inquire of, with Greg about what's going on. Yeah. I'm sorry, with Brad. First, uh, first off, uh, Rick, we're going to have to change the name to the, of the show to the Rich Richie Show with the NASM CPT. Yeah. <laughs> and to reverse it. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, Flores in the chat wants to know, does alkaline water help to avoid getting diabetes? Can you explain how, how alkaline water might help? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. Um, from what I know, there's no evidence to suggest that alkaline water can help with um, preventing diabetes. And, and from my perspective, you know, there's kind of a couple major reasons why. One, there's been no evidence to show that, you know, pH from water actually can affect any of the met metabolic processes that are involved in type 2 diabetes. And then the other thing is, you know, when we think about pH in the human body um, and then what it means with water and your blood, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So if you think about pH is a logarithmic scale. So that means like if when I go from, you know, seven, which is neutral to, to, six to five to four, each of those is a 10 X jump. So seven to six is 10, six to five is a hundred and so on and so forth. So when you consume, um, when you consume pH water, let's say it's a pH of eight to 10, um, and it goes into your stomach, the pH of your stomach is one to three, right? So it's like millions of times more acidic than the slight change in the water that you're consuming. So generally speaking, that water would have to survive the acidic environment of your stomach, have the pH be relatively unchanged, and then make it into all your cells, and then maybe change that piece. Um, and there just doesn't appear to be any evidence to suggest that's the case. Interesting. That's a good question. I thought it was really good. And there's there's been a lot of talk about alkaline water just kind of in, in general, for general health. And so I think it's interesting just to address that um, as it comes in, right? So alkaline water does have to battle the, the stomach acids first. But w with that said, um, you know, if we have some baking soda, you know, there's a potential that baking soda does to help buffer some of the the, the lactic or the, the hydrogen responses in workouts a little bit. Uh, does that just happen to make it past the stomach? So it lowers the pH to buffer some of that when it comes to, to exercise? Yeah. So what happens there is your body, the, your body has a few main ways of like handling the acid base balance. Um, one is your kidneys and the other major one is your blood through the sodium bicarbonate system. Um, and so when you consume baking soda, which is sodium bicarbonate, quite a bit of it survives in that makes it into your bloodstream. So you basically just increase the buffer capacity of your blood. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense then. All right. Very good. Thank you. It's good to have smart people on the show. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, all right, Brad. So Greg, uh, any other questions come through? Oh, I think Greg's got the spinning wheel of death going on right now. So I'm not sure we're going to get another question from Greg right now. However, uh, Greg, if you can hear me, in the private chat, if you want to cut and paste any questions that may have come through so that I can pass those along um, and and we can get Brad to, to pick those up, that might be great. Um, all right, so unfortunately for everybody else, I gotta ask my questions. Yeah. <laughs> so back to me. Um, 
One of the things that that we look at is uh, you mentioned when the here let's let's talk about trainers. Trainers yeah. are going to experience working with people with type two diabetes. Uh, what are some ways, practical steps, and applications that trainers can help to support people that have type two diabetes, their clients specifically? Yeah. So I would say probably the first step is just kind of understand your scope of practice and kind of where that starts um, and where that ends. Cause I think that's super important one for obviously staying within the legal bounds of your job, but also just building the right relationship. Um, you know, so one is realize that your role as a trainer is really just to, to try to facilitate as much physical activity as you can um, try to understand their limitations of like, Hey, this person may not be able to do super high intensity exercise for a really long time. Um, and then try to facilitate weight loss as much as you can amongst people who um, have obesity and type two diabetes, and then try to build a relationship with those people. So you can kind of help them slowly change their habits over time. I would say that's going to be the biggest piece. Um, you know, there are some considerations that you should have in terms of like maybe some of the limitations. Like we know that people with type two diabetes, they become more like anaerobic at a lower exercise intensity than people without diabetes. Um, so that means like if you put two people at a given exercise intensity and one has diabetes and one doesn't, the one with the type two diabetes is more likely to be anaerobic than the other one, which means their capacity to do that work for a sustained period of time is shorter. So just kind of understand that, hey, as we're getting started, more aerobic, lower intensity work might allow them to train longer. And if you're going to use high intensity interval training, realize their work capacity may be a little bit limited compared to somebody who doesn't have that, just from a kind of pure physiology standpoint. So do we think that is the case because of maybe, and I don't know, and I don't want to lay this out with judgment, but um, maybe because there was more sedentary uh, a more sedentary history where they're deconditioned or is there something physiological that goes on because of this, this pathology that, that limits their uh, aerobic capacity? So it's actually the latter. Um, okay. And what it comes down to is, and this is kind of a, a paradox slash maybe, you know, weird phenomenon for people to understand, but people with type two diabetes actually have impaired fat metabolism. So at baseline and at a given level of exercise intensity, they're oxidizing or burning more carbohydrates for fuel than fatty acids. Um, and so what that means is they're going to be using glycolysis more. They're going to be producing more hydrogen ions. They're going to be you know, more likely to fatigue and their ability to utilize fat is impaired, which means they're kind of aerobic metabolism, their recovery um, and their ability to sustain effort is impaired compared to somebody else. And it comes down to like, a fundamental physiological level of substrate metabolism um, and then like genetic regulation of what genes are being turned on. With, with that said, um, maybe you can make this clear for me. So I know that there's this kind of initial potential anaerobic phase and then glycolysis, which nets you fewer ATP. Um, do they end up... Um, you know, through an oxidative process, or are they just not not going through more of an oxidative process to to net more energy? Um, yeah, that's a decent way to look at it. Um, another a good analogy I have is like think about your car with like the 
the fuel to air mixture, right? If you get it too rich, um, it's not as efficient. If you get it too lean, it's not efficient. And so imagine the, the average person is kind of has the optimal fuel to air um, ratio. And then somebody with type two diabetes is running a little too rich to where they're just not as efficient. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So I got a message from Greg saying he's back. Prove it, oh, Greg. Prove, prove it. <laughs> I'm here. There he is. The joys of internet connections, right? Uh, so, so Justin in the chat wants to know what's the best method for carb counting for diabetes and what medical nutrition therapies are best in your opinion? Yeah. Um, gosh. So I would say, you know, if you're doing carb counting, you're probably going to be working with a, uh, a registered dietitian who can kind of work on that with you directly. So I'd say that's probably the first place. But if you're just trying to like manage your carbohydrate intake for yourself, um, you know, just tracking your intake and trying to correlate that to to kind of your blood sugars over time, your body weight, et cetera, that's a decent way to do it. Otherwise, if you're doing like actual carb counting and you're trying to then match that with an insulin load, um, a registered dietitian is going to be the person that you're going to work with with that. And it'll be a very specific um, piece there. And then was there a second part of that question? I don't, I don't recall. Was there a second part of that question, Greg? I don't know if we're going to get Greg to answer that no, question. No, I was going to answer that. Oh, okay. There he is. <laughs> I covered everything. We're good there. Uh, okay. Uh, Danielle also wants to know, uh, how can we get the public more versed on reading their blood sugar and understanding what it means sooner rather than later? Uh, it seems that once a person understands they are pre-diabetic stage, they often kick lifestyle changes off and, and get them going. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, and, and there's kind of a two answers to that. Um, one is more consumer focused technology that just makes that more readily accessible to people. Um, so like at home blood sugar testing kits, continuous glucose monitors, those things may be of some help. Um, but I think the other piece is putting a big emphasis in the medical community of preventative medicine. Um, like I know even myself, I'm not great about going to get annual blood work. Um, one, I'm probably just a little bit lazy about it. And two, there is a little bit of comfort, I think, for a lot of us of like, if I don't know, I don't have a problem. Um, so, you know, we we just have to be better about systematizing getting people's, you know, blood work done regularly. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And that goes back to the conversation, the question that I think it was Justin had just a moment ago, where he was asking about the carbohydrate intake and 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 ultimately as my endocrinologist said to me, it's all about your numbers, yeah. right? So you, you got to test your blood sugar and people sometimes just don't like do, I mean, nobody likes doing it. Nobody's like, yes, it's time to test blood sugar again. Nobody likes pricking their finger and testing their blood. And um, it's challenging. It's why when, uh, when Brad mentioned the continuous glucose monitor, sometimes it can be a lot more simple for people where you just don't have to worry about this, yeah. you know, you know, three, four times a day, several times a day, once a day, even for, uh, a challenge, uh, in a lot of instances where you just have something on your arm and then you wave this little thing, this reader next to it and it tells you, uh, and that stays on for usually about two weeks. Yeah. Um, 
It's about your numbers. So what what are your numbers saying? Because it, it's only what you can metabolize. And, and if you can metabolize X amount of carbohydrates that you can take in, then you're great, good to go. You might even be able to, to lower medication if you've got um, some of your clients that are on medication when they start making some lifestyle changes then those medications may be lowered down but and how do we know if they get lowered down it's all about the numbers right so you go back yeah. to what are your a1c's and what are your blood sugars and so here real quick uh brad maybe you can answer this for people because a lot of people don't understand this and i'm sure you will more eloquently explain it than i um hba1c we hear that on every commercial that comes on. What is it? What is an A1C and how is that different from a, a finger prick? Yeah. So great question. Um, HbA1c just means glycated hemoglobin, which is essentially how much sugar is attached to your red blood cells um, in your body. And so what that measures really is like, it's a good measure for what is your average blood glucose over about a 90 day window. Um, so that's what that tells you. A finger prick gl blood glucose actually measures the exact amount of glucose in a given volume of blood at a very specific time. Um, so one is like, this is what it is today. And another one is a measure of how much it has averaged over the last three months or so. Perfect. Perfect. I think that's really helpful. Uh, thank you for answering that question. And now, um, Greg, do we have any other questions before we let Brad get back to to his his real work we are good to go just want to remind everybody though that they can uh get access to that free science behind effective weight loss mini course click the link in our description and uh, take a look at that we uh highly recommend it if you're interested in learning more about weight loss and, and everything that goes with that that's perfect thank you so much and thank you for nasm for putting together that that course the free mini course offering it for free right now it is it's such a, a gift to have uh nasm offering that out so thank you a shout out to nasm for things like that and then again it might be a feeder to uh our cnc which uh our amazing guest brad uh was a big big subject matter expert contributor to that um Thank you so much, Brad, for everything that you've done with and for NASM and for being on the show today. Yeah, it's it's always an honor and a pleasure and uh, happy to be a part of it. So, Excellent. Uh, if if um, Do you have social media handles? If people just want to follow you or your company, then yeah. uh, please shout that out. Yeah, you can, um, you can find us. So our coaching company is Macros Inc. Um, we are at macrosinc.net. You can find us. We have a free Facebook group, I think, of like 200,000 people. Um, we actually help. Uh, we actually do a ton of free advice there. So if people have any questions, um, you can go there. It's just Macros Inc. Find our group. Whoa. And I guess um, it's not the only groups and announce stuff yeah. for free. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, you can find me on Instagram. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't really use it that much. Um, yeah. So I would say if people want to find us, that's probably the, the best spot to get a hold of me. Fantastic. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Also point out, uh, for those of you listening, don't know my, uh, you can email me at rick.richie, R-I-C-H-E-Y at nasm.org. And I'm most active on Instagram. If you want to shoot me a DM, it's at dr.rickrichie. Thank you so much, Brad, for being here. Thank you everybody for listening. This has been the NASM CPT podcast. <laughs>